You are listening to the Magic Drop Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Cornish, actor, author, and creator. Join me on this journey of growth, joy, and love. I'm here to bring you dope content to expand your mindset and uplift your energy. Why? Because it's your epic life. In this episode, I'll be chatting to Dr. Kate Balestri. Kate is a licensed psychologist, a certified sex therapist, sex addiction therapist, and couples therapist. Dr. Kate is based in Los Angeles, Miami, and Chicago. She focuses on providing counseling services to help people build resilience and recovery from what ails them. Her mission is to help people move from a position of pain or discomfort to one of holistic, empowered, and thriving vitality. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands we meet on today. I'd like to pay my respects to my elders past and present. Also, a quick shout out to ACAST for hosting this potty. Kate, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So I'm a big fan of your work and I've been following your Modern Intimacy page. And I actually came across a post that really interests me on sexual autonomy and sexual independence. So can you tell us what sexual autonomy and sexual independence represent? Sure. I think right now, especially in the United States, but certainly in different places around the world, we're seeing a lot of legislation that is attempting to limit the sexual practices of folks, um, especially people with vulvas. And what sexual independence really is about is celebrating our right to autonomy in our bodies and our right to pleasure as we define it, so long as it's consensual. Um, So it's really about having a, a sovereign right to be sexual in your own skin in a way that you know, is free from the shame and judgment or control of others. Beautiful. And what are the different skills that can contribute to the sexual independence? So there's a lot of different skills that can be really helpful in understanding sexual independence and also cultivating it. And first, it really starts with understanding context. So learning about what context you do and don't prefer to be sexual in and learning how to understand your own personal beliefs and kind of you know navigate that with whatever partners you are choosing to be sexual with. Another skill is really about developing introspection. So thinking about your own mental and emotional processes in general, but definitely around your sexual beliefs and preferences. So that can include meditation, journaling, or even engaging in some mindfulness during sex to think about kind of how you feel in those moments. Um, Self-reliance is important. So depending on your own efforts and abilities. So this is really about cultivating a healthy solo sex relationship so that you can explore things and be really confident about knowing how your body works and what you like and what you don't. Um, Another skill is really about setting healthy boundaries for yourself and with other people. And then it's about enforcing and respecting those boundaries. Um, Asking for help is another skill that we don't often think about when it comes to sex, but I think it's a really valuable skill to cultivate because we do live in such a culture that's driven by so much shame around sex still. Um, But asking for help is really important, especially if there's something that 
you know, you need to adjust during sex, right? If you're experiencing pain or if there's education that you want and haven't had yet, it's okay and important to reach out to others. Um, negotiating risks healthily is an important skill for sexual independence. You know, thinking about um, what contraception or barriers you might want to use or need to use and thinking about what kinds of behaviors you're okay with and um, making sure to be assertive of that and respectful of other people's boundaries. Um, using logic to identify patterns and really being more analytic in your reasoning is, is really important because it helps you identify relationship patterns, which can help you think about any vulnerabilities you might have sexually. Of course, communicating is an important skill, being honest when you do that, um, and being really self-nurturing. Sex is super vulnerable sometimes, and each of us is worthy of tenderness, kindness, and uh, an absence of judgment, you know, when we're thinking about being sexual. So those are the primary skills. I know that was a lot. I was wondering if you have any tips to overcome barriers of communication fear. There can be a little bit of fear around, you know, setting boundaries or communicating sexually. Well, sometimes it can be really helpful to talk it out with a good friend or someone that you trust, even a, a therapist, and kind of think through what your fears are. Because often we have fears because we don't feel entitled to have, an, have the opinion that we have. Um, so a lot of people that I work with will get a little nervous around setting boundaries with a partner because they don't want to disappoint them or they don't want to hurt their feelings. And in some cases, they're even afraid of violence or retaliation. So we think it's really important to get clear on what your fears are and then to troubleshoot what it might look like to have a couple of different strategies at hand. So that could include having the conversation if you're concerned about violence um, with an escape plan or with, um, you know, a witness nearby. Um, if, if there's not a risk of violence, it's really about finding a good time when you and your partner are both well-resourced and you can set the stage to let them know that there's something important you want to talk about and try to have that conversation from a place of um, being able to speak in the first person, right? So instead of telling your partner, well, you do this or you don't do that, really celebrate your own point of view and uh, using I statements can be a nice way to kind of set the stage for it to be a very accountable conversation. And then when it comes to casual sex, that can also be something that's a whole other thing to be able to navigate. Mm -hmm. um, so is there any kind of tips that you could share if communication is something that a partner feels the need to do or that someone feels the need to do in casual sex? Again, I think so much depends on the context. So if you're with a new partner and there are things that you want to make sure you're really clear about, doing that before you get sexual is usually really important. So that can include, you know, while you're out at drinks or at dinner, or if you're chatting online before you decide to meet up in person to try and ensure that you're on the same page about things. Mm -hmm having that conversation then can help you to feel you know more relaxed when you actually meet or go into the sexual activity why is there stigma around herpes simplex type 2 and how common is it it's really really common so the last statistic that i read was something like 
60% of folks have herpes simplex virus one and two. Um, and I don't remember what the numbers were in the United States for HSV two for HSV one. It can be even higher somewhere in the 80 percentile range, but there's so much stigma around HSV two because we usually associate that with sexual contact and we we carry a lot of negativity about sexuality and shame around sex in general. So when people misunderstand that this virus can be transmitted, certainly sexually, but also it can be transmitted through other kinds of contact, like kissing, for example, you can have HSV-1 on your mouth or genitals and same with HSV-2. So oftentimes people will get an outbreak of HSV-1 on their genitals or even their anus and they'll think that it is herpes too, right? So there's a lot of miscommunication and misunderstanding about what these viruses really are. And it's just tragically overcoupled with the shame that we carry about sex in general. And it has roots back in purity culture, this idea of being sort of pure, clean, all of these words that we try not to associate with sex anyway, um, because they're really cloaked with a lot of judgment. For people that have the herpes simplex, what is is there a communication protocol? Like how can they communicate that to partners and what needs to be communicated? Well, there might be people who disagree with me on this, but I'm a big proponent of if you know what your status is, making that transparent ahead of time. Um, I think that's the best practice because it gives people the opportunity to make informed decisions about how they want to be sexual and if they want to be sexual. It also gives them the opportunity to get more education about what maybe they don't know about herpes and it can start a really honest conversation that can destigmatize a lot of it and make sex accessible when someone may have thought it wasn't historically, because it gives you the option of talking about how best to prepare and to use barriers so that you can have the really hot sex you want and reduce the risk of transmission. I was wondering, why do some individuals experience crying after sex, even if it was a nice experience? Mm-hmm. So postcoital dysphoria is really common um, for a lot of folks, at least at one point in their lifespan. For some people, it happens more. And we liken that condition, I don't even know if I want to call it a condition, but it happens because there's a big shift in endorphins and all of the neurochemicals in your body. So you know, during sex, there's intensity, there are endorphins, there's testosterone, there's estrogen, there's all kinds of stuff flowing around. And then after sex, it can be a big shift in all of those hormones that are related to orgasm. So it's a normal thing. Yeah, I would say it's really common, a lot more common than people think. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything sad or bad or wrong with the sexual experience that you had. For many people, it's really about a sudden change in their, in their hormones. I wanted to jump into different arousal needs. So is there different arousal needs for different sexes? It depends on what you're, what you're describing. So for people, uh, people with, uh, of all different genders and all different biological sexes can have different kinds of arousal. So we really think about arousal as having two kind of main paths. There's spontaneous arousal, which means that it sort of comes out of a, um, 
arousal just sort of happens. You might see something that's interesting or that turns you on or have a thought or a memory or just feel horny out of the blue. And your mind is ready to go. Your mind says yes straight away. Um, then there's responsive desire. And that really um, looks a little bit different, right? Somebody might want to have sex and and they're not really quite there yet in their mind, but their body is saying yes. So that could look like maybe kissing your partner and you weren't in the mood before, but you start kissing your partner and your body starts responding in kind. So people of all genders can have both and it can change depending on the mood you're in or what's going on in your life at the moment or any medical conditions you might have or medications you may be taking. But typically people born with penises tend to have a higher likelihood towards spontaneous arousal and desire. Um, and folks with vulvas tend to be more inclined to have more of a responsive desire pattern. But there can be lots of interchange between those two. It's uh, very individual. And I guess people could tune in to when they feel aroused and have awareness about that. And then they could communicate those things to their partner if they were needing more arousal mm-hmm. in their relationship. I guess it's all self-awareness and um, self-inquiry to figure those kind of things out. So exploring sexual likes and dislikes. So if someone's like, I don't know what I like or I don't know what I'm into, what's a good place or where's a good place to start? Is it with self-pleasure? It can be, absolutely. Um, People can get really curious about what they like without any erotic material. So they might go into their memory or cultivate a fantasy in their mind, someone they've seen at some point in their life or in their day. Um, So they can start with, you know, participating in different kinds of solo sex activities to really learn what they like. If they're with a partner, that's a great time to just be really curious with each other. And it's where there can be a lot of fun. Um, When you don't know what you like, everything is kind of a guessing game. And that can add a lot of novelty and excitement, kind of like, you know, just a really exciting game of um, choose your own adventure. Yeah, and I guess that's a good way to look at it as something exciting, not something that's like scary, a place to play. So coconut oil, is coconut oil safe to use as lube? It's really not recommended to use as lubrication. It can interact with um, the the body's pH and and can cause different kinds of um, irritations and sometimes I think even yeast infections. So I would recommend sticking with a water or um, a silicone-based lube. I wanted to talk about relationships a little bit. So is there any reasons why sexual attraction can dim in long-term relationships? Well, definitely. Um, I think most of us are sort of sold this idea that we're going to meet a person and have this long-term relationship and it's just happy ever after. But the reality is that our different long-term relationship needs sort of peak at different times and different drives within us are alive at different points in that relationship. So when you first meet someone, there's typically um, a higher lust drive that's really fueled by testosterone, estrogen, dopamine, and it can last anywhere from two weeks to nine months, something like that. And after that point, if people stay together, we tend to shift into more of a limerence drive. So here's where we might think about romantic love and 
think a joining or emerging of our lives. You might spend more time together. Um, you might decide to go on vacations together, or even move in or get engaged, married. And the intensity of the feelings that you feel during that time period are at peak levels of um, height right before like big commitment moments. And then after those big commitment moments or after about two years together, we start shifting into more of an attachment drive. And in that attachment drive, the neurochemicals that are really sort of front and center are things like oxytocin and vasopressin, which, you know, don't really gel with a lot of lust. They're more about attachment and bonding and trust building. So when couples get to that point, it's pretty normal to expect that they might not have as high um, levels of lust for each other as they did at the beginning, but infusing their relationship with some space some distance, um, you know, enough time on their own as individuals, and some novelty can help to create more spark and more breath and more newness, even if it's about rediscovering things about your partner or creating new aspects in your life as an individual and then sharing that with your partner. Now you have something new going on for you that your partner doesn't even know about yet. And when you bring that novelty and, and that texture to the relationship, that's where you really have um, a lot of opportunity to rekindle that hot passion that existed at the start. And if there is a relationship and someone is still got a lot of like sexual chemistry and sexual attraction and the other person's having a very difficult time, is there a way to also be able to communicate that and is it something that the uh, couple should work on together or? Yeah, a lot really depends on what's going on for the relationship and, and the individuals in it. So it might be a good idea to work with a couple's therapist to help you get a sense of whether or not there's something going on in the relationship that might be creating a new imbalance of desire um, but some folks just have a different set point and a different default level of, of libido and interest in sex. So it could be something that's kind of a static difference throughout the relationship. And working with a sex therapist can help couples find a way to navigate those discrepancies in desire, um, whether they be long term or more situational. So I also have I have a little question about sex toys and ego. So some people can see a vibrator come out or a sex toy come out and be really, you know, taken back by that or don't want to don't want to associate with it. So that's a really interesting concept, I think. Interesting part of humans' behaviors or thoughts or whatever's underlying that. Is there anything you want to share on that? Oh, wow. We could talk all, all night about that. But I think one of the things to be really conscious about is that if somebody sees a sex toy as a competitor instead of a teammate in sexual pleasure, there's usually a bigger underlying fear around, am I enough? Am I you know, going to be able to meet my partner's needs? Um, and unfortunately, the way that most men are socialized, they're really connected to their sexual virility as being demonstrative of their like worthiness as a man. 
So I think if we approach, you know, any fears from a place of non-judgment and, and really kind of celebrate all of the ways in which the sex toy is a complement to their presence and not a competitor um, with their presence, I think it can help some, some folks feel a little bit more secure and comfortable trying out new toys. Most bodies with vulvas uh, require clitoral stimulation for pleasure. And a penis can be amazing, but sometimes when it's penetrating, um, it just doesn't, doesn't hit all the right spots because it can't be inside and outside at the same time. So if a sex toy is not an option or feels too scary, maybe get creative with your partner and think about ways that you might be able to use your hands or... Um, create other kinds of sensations so that they can get what they need. I was wondering if you could give listeners a little bit of insight into Tantra and Tantra's relationship with sex. <laughs> so Tantra is really, um, it's really beautiful. And a lot of folks think that, you know, they, they immediately sort of liken it to Sting's comments many years ago about having a four hour orgasm or whatever, however long his orgasm was that he claimed through Tantra. But Tantra is really about being in rhythm and being connected with your partner. So sometimes penetration isn't even a part of it. It's really about syncing up your breath and maintaining eye contact and creating a lot of um, synergy in the energy between two bodies. And when couples can do that, it can it can open up a whole chest of eroticism that they didn't even know was available to them. Now, for some folks, it can feel really intense um, and some people find it kind of boring. But for the people that love that kind of um, eroticism and that connection, it is fireworks for pretty much all parts of the body and mind. Cool. Okay, now I want to talk about orgasms. So is there a limit to the amount of orgasms that someone can have in one sexual experience? I mean, not not like legally or anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> not legally. <laughs> no, I mean, it really depends on someone's refractory period. So people with penises tend to have a longer refractory period than people with vulvas. One of the things that is really great for folks with vulvas is that they do have a higher capacity for multiple orgasms in one sexual setting and experience. So really the sky's the limit as long as they are interested and willing and their partner is too, I say go for gold. Go for gold. <laughs> and do you have any favorite books or resources that you could recommend for listeners that want to learn some more? Oh my gosh, so many. <laughs> Um, probably one of my favorite books for people who want to learn more about sexuality in, gen in general is Come As You Are by Emily Nagowski. It's a really fantastic book that talks a lot about the um, anatomy of the vulva and, and female sexuality, but she does such a great job talking sort of in general. What does this mean for everybody of all genders? Um, so that's a must read for folks who are looking to be more curious um, about 
things like gender and sex and anatomy and pleasure and desire, and she breaks it down really easily. There's a book on um, cultivating conscious open relationships called Open Deeply. It's by Kate Marie, and she does a really beautiful job of kind of helping people think about their attachment needs and how to have strong communication while you're trying to create an open relationship. Awesome. I have to check that one out. I haven't read that one. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a good one. There's a bunch of others. I mean, I could go on and on, but. So thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to chat to you and I'll put all the links in the show notes so people can get in touch with you. Absolutely. My TikTok and Instagram are Dr. Kate Balistrieri and my website is modernintimacy.com. Oh, thank you so much. This was really lovely and I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you so much for being a part of this journey. If this podcast resonates with you, I would love your support. So please share, subscribe or leave a five-star review. Don't forget, you can find all the detail and links for this episode in the show notes. You can connect with me via Instagram at Isabel Cornish or via my website, isabelcornish.life. For more uplifting content, I highly recommend checking out my book, The Why, Healthy Habits for an Epic Life. Thanks for listening. And remember, stay magic.